Hey folks, welcome to the CyberAware podcast series, episode two of it, with password and protecting devices being our primary topic of focus. We're with our guest today, Bradley Ammerman, uh, with me, your host, Sherwin Bethello, and your co-host, Raj Manander. We both work as IT Sec analysts for ITS at Minnesota State University, Mankato. Thank you for listening in with us. Let's get started. Brad, would you say a few words to introduce yourself? Adjunct faculty professor at MSU. Uh, I teach IT350 and IT450. You have also have worked in the industry, correct? Uh, yes, quite a bit. Would you like me to go over my bio? Sure, a little bit. Okay. Uh, let's see. I started as a web and intranet and extranet uh, professional at the Supreme Court of Nevada. From there, I became an analytics guy over at the Denver International Airport. I basically was on their incident response. After that, I went to be a pen tester, and that's basically what I've been doing most of my life. I'm sure that our listeners tuning in would love to hear more about how you've progressed, and we'll get to some questions on that. So pertaining to our topic for today's, which is password and protecting devices, um, we're continuing off the series that we had with our last guest speaker, Dr. Christoph Volsos, where we talked about phishing and phishing emails and patching devices. So with passwords and password you know, protections, password security, uh, do you have some information on that that students and staff here at MSU should be aware of? Oh, definitely. Uh, but I actually have a question about Dr. V being on, if I may. Sure, yeah. Um, so did he have a take on if a company should be ramping up their phishing campaigns on internal employees since now we're, you know, in a crisis and working from home? Yeah, he did. We talked quite a bit about phishing and he did mention, especially right now with the current crisis situation, there are a lot of kind of like redundancies at various corporations and companies. And Dr. V essentially told that, yeah, given the current situation where everyone's trying to work remote and, you know, is, is working from their home, phishing should be a, a big focus for a lot of companies. And we talked a lot from our aspect as well, since we work as, you know, security analysts at the university, we've been receiving quite the influx on phishing emails. And Raj, do you have any things to add about phishing? Um, I think we kind of covered most of the stuff in the previous podcast that we had. Just, you know, stay alert. Just pause before you check your emails and stuff. Don't skim through it. Don't, don't click on suspicious links. Report emails as much as you can. That looks suspicious and stuff. Yeah, a lot of phishing emails regarding COVID-19 and trying to scare students and, and you know, staff and even faculty members. So. Yeah, when I was at Lockheed, uh, we called this March Madness. Um, all of our APT threat actors would ramp up in March for some reason. We actually had graphs on where we could see the peaks and the valleys from when their activity from, you know, bad guys would ramp up. And March was a heavy one when it came to actively attacking and phishing campaigns from threat actors. And that's in general, correct? Regardless of the current situation we're in. 
Correct. Yeah, this is even prior to the COVID. Now, the COVID has probably just added to it. Now, I can hop back on your question now. Passwords. Right. Um, basically, if our audience is mostly students, I would like to say to them, if your password is the season and the year, which is usually the most known and most well-used password. So right now, spring 2020, change it. If your password is the same as uh, for your Facebook account as it is your bank account, change it. You should never have and repeat passwords. If your password is under eight characters or it's password one, change it. Get rid of uh, the, the whole mentality of a password and, and migrate over to like a passphrase, something that's easily rememberable, but that you can also add a salt to. And what I mean by salt is using special characters in place of letters and numbers or just in general at the end. So adding three pound signs to the end of your password is going to heavily increase the strength of that. Uh, and in regards to password, you know, length, should passwords be, you know, so typically from what we've gathered, at least passwords are the longer, the better, correct? Well, see, it is the longer, the better for password crackers. However, if it's something that's been in a word list, the length isn't going to matter. My GPU cracker and my three terabyte word list, if it's been found before, I'm going to find it in a matter of hours. Right. And that's the, that's the really downfall of it. So what I do, and I don't think anybody's going to follow this, but I have a password manager called KeePass. Um, yes, it's been known to not be as secure, but however, it's locally stored on my device in an encrypted file share. So you have to actually unencrypt the file share with you know a passphrase to be able to get to my password manager, then to also have to put in another password to get to all my other passwords. On my password manager, I have it set by default as 22 character passwords, implementing upper, lower, number, and special character. And that's me personally. On other things, I also have stronger passwords. So like my bank account is a 60, four character password on one of them. The one uh, I think Wells Fargo only allows 14 or 16. So I have it to the max, but I also implement two factor authentication. So with that, they also have to, you know, they send me a code and then I have to put it in. So that just adds another layer of security on my banking. Now you, you did mention uh, some key terms such as wordless brute force attack and two factor authentication. Uh, would you care to explain some of them to the listeners out there? Yeah. So a word list is basically, if you, if you have common sense, it's a bunch of words in a list. Now, what they normally are is going to be common passwords that have been identified and thrown into this list. Or it's jumbles of multiple alphabets that are merged together into a list that I can leverage against password hashes to try and crack it faster. Um, if I don't have like a word list, uh, sure one said a brute force attack. That's where I just basically throw my password cracker at it saying, try everything until you crack it. 
that's going to take a lot longer. But when you have companies that have GPU crackers with 10 to 20 video cards in it, it's going to ramp up the amount of time that it'll take to actually crack that password. And then for a password management system, basically you have a master password and that will be used to decrypt your password safe to where all your passwords are stored. So an example for me, I have a password for every single website I'm on and each one is different. They are stored in this password safe where I actually have to go and put a password in to get to my passwords. And, and that is one of the key things that we've noticed as well. Whenever we have these data breaches, the first thing is most people reuse a lot of the passwords and that's a big area of compromise. Um, and we've gotten quite a few emails about data breaches from you know external sources that report to us and tell us about our user base as to who is reusing same passwords that they use for their you know associated star ID and their MSU account for various other services. And that's how they get breached and hacked. Oh, definitely. I've been on engagements when I physically break into a building or I'm just doing an assessment and they have the password written on a post-it note under a keyboard in the left drawer right next to their chair or even just on the whiteboard. Those things no one should ever do. However, when companies implement the change every you know 90 days you have to change your password and it can't be something remotely close to the previous one people start to forget so when you know it is difficult by adding more strength or links to it the likelihood of them remembering is going to be much harder so what do they do they in turn write it down that's where that password safe would come into play instead of writing it down you just remember the one password and then all the other ones you just copy and paste out and that brings us to our next question. How often should people change or how frequently should people change their passwords? Because from what I've, I've gathered, most students or even people in general change their passwords maybe once or twice every year. And only when, you know, there's a reported data breach that the company that they or the that they're using, the service that they're using reports and tells them, hey, you've been reported in a breach. Please change your password. It's really going to be controversial, honestly, with my, my answer, because NIST basically at this point really doesn't even care about passwords. I don't very rarely change my passwords. Okay. Um, the reason being is because they are in a password safe. And now granted, that doesn't really make it any more secure for me if there is a data breach. But if I am alerted to a data breach, I'll go in and change my password. But most of the things that I do online, I have implemented uh, two-factor authentication. So even if they do get my password, they're gonna have to do some pretty shady physical stuff to be able to get the pin off of my phone in the timely manner it takes to actually log in. What I recommend for companies is, you know, it was the standard every quarter, go ahead and implement a password change. Now, if your passwords, though, are just set up secure in the first place where you're implementing 15 to 20 character passwords just to log in and you are forcing upper, lower number and special character. You're really 
really shouldn't need to change that once it's in place, unless you are compromised in one way or another. And other things, though, too, administrators and critical business units should have even longer passwords. And then you have your, you know, separation of duties. So if there are an administrator that has access to like your domain controller or any critical business, he should have two accounts. One is just his normal everyday account that he can have whatever password on there. And two is his more secure one, which would be like 20 to 30 characters long. Uh, you did mention two-factor authentication, so a question did pop up on our radar. Um, what's the difference between two-factor authentication and multi-factor authentication, and is you know multi-factor authentication truly better than two-factor authentication? Well, so the over-the-wire uh, things that you get from like Wells Fargo, that's you know, not really the, the two factor I'm talking about. Like two-factor authentication is something you have and something you know. So a password and a pin code, uh, a badge and a uh, passphrase, you know, a retinal scan and a pin, like that's the two factor. Multi-factor authentication, it could be like a mix of more than one. So you have a password, a pin and a badge. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So uh, yeah, you mentioned retinal scan and biometrics. Are they uh, more effective to like a pin or password? That's when we have to take into account where there's your false positive rate versus your false negative rate. And it's a mathematical equation that you have to take into account to actually see if that is a viable solution. We only had that at Lockheed and only like high up people would do it. And the reason being is because of the privacy. I mean, you're getting your eye so close to something that you could get, you know, eye goo from someone else. Mm -hmm. But it is a, a good form of authentication, right? It's it's one of them. Yeah, it's up there. I mean, there's so many um, different biometrics that are out there, but companies at least like feasibly are not going to implement that for their, their client base. So just adding that one, like Google Authenticator um, is a tool for, you know, doing a two-factor authentication. Wells Fargo has their little passphrase that they send you uh, a text message with. Um, um, actually, I think most banks do that. I would recommend you know, students and or faculty listening to do this, to go to your web you know, account on your bank and implement this like ASAP because that's gonna be just another layer. And if your passwords are only eight characters long and it's you know Broncos 2, and then you change your password to Broncos 3, a hacker's going to, well, I, I'm not going to say hacker because hackers are the good guys. Uh, an attacker, a criminal is going to be able to find that out very quickly. Yeah, I, I know definitely for when it comes down to biometrics, there, you know, there are a bunch of different biometrics. Like I know that even, you know, we have a toe print, a unique toe print, or even like uh, the underside of our tongue can be, you know, even taken as as a unique biometric so it's not feasible for for companies and corporations to incorporate those you know unique biometrics or some things that might not even be sanitary yeah i mean there's so many i mean like most of them i would say are sanitary like your voice identification uh the eye scanners not so much fingerprint scanners i mean that's like 
nasty. I don't know if you've ever been to the airport, but you know, those kiosks are really not the cleanest thing when you have to log into your flight. I, I know for a fact, yeah, that there are a lot of times where they're always sanitizing stations, especially at airports where you have to do a, a, a thumbprint or a fingerprint scanner for all your fingerprints and, and even your palm. You, they, they definitely have to keep sanitizing the surfaces. So yeah, that's one thing that people have to bear in mind. So to oh, and now even more so than ever because of, you know, this COVID stuff. Right, right. So to recap about passwords, um, you know, what would you say? So minimum password length should be anywhere from, from 16 to, you know, 22, you'd say, characters? I mean, I would recommend that, honestly, uh, but it, won't, it wouldn't matter if they implemented a password safe. If they have the password safe, just make sure your password, your master password, that's what it is, to unlock your password management program is long enough and unique enough to you that you can remember it. Because if you don't remember that, you ain't, there's no way to recover your all your passwords. And um, since we're talking about that, does like the complexity of your username also matter when it comes to cybersecurity? I would say yes. Um, at a at a company, you're not going to have that ability uh, because it's going to be usually first last, first initial, last name, uh, first name, last initial. I've seen some companies, and this is brilliant, uh, doing aliases. So your email is your first name and last name and at company, but your login is like ASDF six forty two. I actually have uh, my like so for all my critical stuff, my banking, uh, my loans, any kind of bills that I pay, um, all of those. I have special characters in my actual username, so it'll be like B, you know, uh, pound underscore space one three, you know, and that's going to be my actual username. Do you have any more questions, Raj? No, that was kind of what was popping on my mind because a lot of people just um, don't really care about the username when it comes to creating accounts. They just kind of throw in their email address also sometimes. I think that's kind of a major thing to look into as well. Right. Oh, it's, it's 100%. Yeah. Other things that are horrible that people do too, and I myself have done it in the past, saving your username and password to your Firefox. Well, if an attacker gets physical access or even virtual access to your box, all they have to do is go into the password manager of your Firefox and unshadow the password and there it is in clear text. Just before we proceed on to the final recap for passwords, one of the critical questions that was sent to us was when it comes to password strength, is it better to just use like arbitrary characters or random characters as opposed to like a passphrase? Um, and is it better to use like multiple alphanumeric characters? What would you say to that, Brad? Yes. <laughs> Either or is great. It's, it's what works best for you. So for me, I have, you know, a passphrase. So an example would be all your base are belong to us or these are not the droids you're looking for. You know, you're going to remember that because those are movie quotes. All right. Now, just in your head, change. All the, the, the one, let's say, A's, they're at signs, and I's are now ones. That's going to increase, you know, the, the strength. And then add, you know, a couple of characters at the end of the passphrase itself, like five pounds. 
you got a pretty secure password uh, passphrase right there. Yeah, hopefully yeah. you haven't given away any you know of your passwords and how you think of creating your passphrases. Nope, most of my stuff is honestly just random. I just hit generate on my password manager and it just and tell it how many characters and then it just gives it to me. Are there any specific password managers that you recommend? Well, I used to use LastPass until they got bought out. Um, but that's a good online one that's saved in the cloud and you can access it pretty much from any device. I personally like it to only be accessed by the one device that I'm on. Mm -hmm. So I have KeePass X on my computer and that's a free one. Um, and I, it's no longer in development. So it is end of life software, but it works great for me. Um, I have no issues and the likelihood of an attacker getting access to my machine is going to be very slim comparative to, you know, like your listeners. And I also have KeePass X uh, Droid on my phone. So that way I can access my password safe on my phone if I'm ever out and about or if I'm at like traveling for work. Right, so definitely use password managers and that will help with the password security, correct? 100%. Yeah, so use passphrases or use um, a password generator and use password managers. And I think that's about it for passwords. So now moving on to device protection Raj, would you care to tell us about you know some of the measures that we at ITS at Minnesota State University, some of the procedures that we do to ensure that devices and our assets are protected? Yep. So first and foremost is basically just locking your computer whenever it's not in use. And again, the thing we just talked about before, passwords, that also comes to play when protecting devices. Um, other than that, if it's you're like in a public space, having like a Kensington lock also kind of helps. Also, we, we also use that in um, ITS on the devices. Um, and putting on a webcam cover or even just covering up the webcam with like a blue painter's tape is also recommended. And lastly, what we do is we keep track of like all the devices that we're using or like that's been given to staff or faculty just so that we know what where they are are they updated or not right um, and do you have anything to add to this brad in terms of general device protection um one good thing that wasn't mentioned is a screen a privacy screen because most people nowadays are using laptops tablets you know, for their mobile computing. We're not carrying around some big desktop and plugging it in unless we're doing like a LAN party at a buddy's house, you know? So having that privacy screen protector is imperative if you're in close quarters and doing uh, critical business work, you know, in public places. I would recommend don't do critical business work in public places, but, you know, there might be a necessity for it. So, implementing you know a privacy screen is is definitely huge right because i know there are definitely a few individuals that try to work on you know spreadsheets or documents even when they're on board planes and especially if you're in an economy maybe not in business class or first class you know if your company's sponsoring or if you're, you're rich enough but if you're in economy definitely you're in close proximity with your fellow passengers and they can definitely peer over to their side and and look at your screen
Oh yeah, dude. Shoulder surfing is huge. And I'll tell you this, I've flown business and first class and I still do it. Is uh, shoulder surfing quite um, a, a big technique that's used? Oh yeah. Access? Oh, 100%. I mean, shoulder surfing, it, how many times do you think you could be in class right now? Like if I'm teaching 450 and I have everybody in class, it's a hands-on class. So laptops are required and someone's checking into their Twitch account, typing it in, and they're right in front of you. Quite I mean, few. how hard is it to just, you know, move your head a little bit and see what they're doing, see what they're typing, or even whip out your phone and hit record? I've noticed that at least with the matte displays, it it's naturally, it doesn't take in that much light externally. But with the with those glossy LCD displays on, on laptop monitors, it definitely, you know, you can see everything clear as day, regardless of the angle. And we call that a vulnerability, folks. Yep. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, we were talking about protect, protecting devices. And so we're, we're wondering about, like, antivirus. So what do you think is the most secure antivirus out there, Brad? None. 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 I mean, uh, now this is my take because, A, I have a Mac. And, B, the... the whole point is an antivirus is to identify a virus. Now that's a reactive measure because the virus has to have already been identified and the either the hash or the heuristics or the behavioral mechanisms have to be tracked and a rule created to be able to identify it. Here's a bad thing. Semantic, uh, McAfee, or you name them, they don't share there's no knowledge share. So if there's a zero day that's found by one company, they're not sharing that secret sauce with all the other ones. So it all depends on that when it comes to your, you know, antivirus. I would say for companies, yes, have it in place. Uh, and if I'm going to say the best one, it's going to be free and it's called Microsoft Defender. That's interesting that you'd recommend Windows Defender over those antivirus softwares that companies and corporations spend maybe even up millions of dollars to try and protect, you know, their devices. And you don't think Microsoft, the billion trillion dollar company, isn't doing the same thing? I mean, by what I've seen in the past three years, the complexity of that software and on its tracking and identifying of you know attackers has just skybound comparative to what it used to be i mean i'm still trying when i have windows defender on assessments i have to somehow try and bypass it and it can be a pain in the butt when we're when talking about device security another critical component would be webcams right because especially now everyone's working remote and from their house so how and from your this is from your personal like your engagements and your interactions with uh, with clients even how easy is it to compromise or hack um, you know a webcam device? Oh, one hundred percent easy. I mean, uh, they're all going to be mostly deployed with default credentials, and if the administrator doesn't go and change it, then you can easily log into you know that video camera that the company has put into place for their you know CCTV. Uh, when it comes to webcams on a personal device like your laptop, all I have to do is access the laptop. So if I am able to, let's say, exploit BlueKeep or the WannaCry vulnerabilities on your laptop, 
I can gain access to your webcam just by accessing your laptop. So like uh, Raj said, put tape over your you know camera if you're not going to be using it. And I would re I recommend don't use the internal webcam on any device. Have an external one. A, it's going to be higher quality for one, but B, you can unplug it. Right. So there, you take away the vulnerability. So definitely people are justified then in feeling concerned or that paranoia surrounding webcams and especially a lot of security folks from industry saying, oh, you got to cover it up with tape, you know, painter's tape or even put a, a webcam cover. 100% vilified and justified. Speaking of which, uh, when we're talking about protecting devices, I know a lot of uh, co companies, organizations, even we at the university, we're, we're trying to ramp up our efforts in IoT device protection. So I know a lot of places, a lot of workspaces are going smart, you know, smart devices to the extent where some people even have what I think are pretty stupid smart devices like, you know, a smart refrigerator in their, you know, in, in, the, in the communal kitchen space in, you know, the, in the office area. Do you think, you know, what, what do you think about all of that, Brad? If it's plugged into their network, it's not a smart idea. That's the best. I, I mean, I've used IoT to pivot, and it's easily done. So if you have IoT devices, segment them off of your critical infrastructure and have their own little subnet or virtual LAN where they can't talk to anything else or just don't put them on the Internet. So they're good, but you have to take up appropriate security measures. Yes. I mean, because again, IoT is rolled out with default credentials. That's where that Miranda, uh, I think that was the bug. I can't remember the botnet, but it just hijacked all IoT devices. And it was, you know, billions and trillions of devices that were used in DDoS attacks. So, yes, yeah, segment that off. Like, I have a ton of smart devices in my home. A ton like all my lights i have alexas i got plugs but they're all on a virtual land that can't talk to any of my other devices whether it's my tv or my office i think for the folks listening out there that's a great idea to try and implement those security measures um one of our final questions in regards to device protection specifically is how do i transfer data securely from an older device to a newer device i mean an external hard drive that's going to be, I mean, instead of using the cloud, like, you know, doing cloud backups, just do it locally because you have physical control of that data instead of someone else managing your key in the cloud and could potentially get, you know, see the data or compromise the data or steal the data. That's my personal, like, if you do it, if you need to transfer, do it locally and have a device that you can wipe after that. Do you then trust cloud services and cloud security or not as much as, you know, physical security? Definitely not as much as my own physical security. I'm not a big proponent yet of jumping to the cloud. I mean, it's a great thing but someone else is managing your security and who knows what their skill set is. We got some other additional questions, Brad, to you specifically. So when it comes to, you know, transitioning to remote 
some folks are asking specifically to you, Brad, how has that has that affected your productivity, uh, both as a professor and, you know, a person working in the industry? Oh, no, I've been working remote since 2000 and I think 10, 2012. So, I mean, it hasn't impacted me now. When I first started, I realized I could get distracted really easy. Like I'd be doing this thing and like squirrel and I'm off track. However, now it's, I actually get more work done from my house because even if I'm sick, I'm still working because I don't have to go into an office. Uh, I just go down a flight of stairs and there's, you know, where I work. Um, if my kids are sick, I'm still working. Um, so my product productivity has actually went up since getting used to being a work at home worker. Okay, that that's interesting for people to know. So definitely, you're you're one that's been accustomed to this for quite a while, and so you've adapted th this pretty easy. See, in the downfall, it's not for everybody because it is really hard at first to get into the groove on you're gonna work, you know, this amount of hours and try and not, you know, get deterred because. What I, what I noticed uh, from a, a normal brick and mortar company, a lot of people would screw off. You know, they go to the water cooler a lot and they chat a lot. So there's a lot of, you know, distractions on your daily, you know, workday when you're at a brick and mortar as compared to when you are a remote worker. Because I don't interact with people very often unless I actually go in to teach. That's about the only time or when I have a project and I have to run into town to Home Depot because, you know, I live in the country. I mean, I just basically interact with my wife, my kids and remotely with my team on, you know, wire. And that's about it. And me and me and Raj were talking about this earlier a couple of weeks ago. One of the things that or the conclusion that we drew up was especially since we, we've just transitioned into working remote and virtually uh, it's rather difficult to get accustomed to especially if you're for the past you know at least a couple of months been you know clocking in to work uh you know and, and even the work the transition from the professional work environment that you have set up already in your office space coming now to your home you at least for me personally i know i definitely feel a bit more unproductive as much as 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 much as i would like to be you know well, th there is a big difference, though, Sherwin. I mean, you've been to my house how many thousands of times? You, you've seen my office. So, you know, I have a special place in my house that if my door is shut, my kids know to leave me alone because that means daddy's working. So I just come in here when I wake up, and which is usually like 9 or 10. And then I work till how, however long I want to. But if that door's shut, you know, that's work mode. Once I leave this office and I shut that door, that's home mode. So I have that ability to be able to distinct, have an area that's, oh, that's work, and this is home. When you have students and people living in one bedroom apartments or dorm rooms or you know really tiny houses, they don't have that ability. And with it not being really nice out yet, in the 50s to 70s, they don't have the luxury of being able to go, you know, outside to do their work or to just go hang out in their garage or storage unit. So that's where I see the big problem with this remote stuff is the people who don't have their own, you know, separate space to work because you really don't want to be working in your bedroom because, you know, you have associated that with sleep. 
And if you don't have that place, or if you even have roommates or crappy roommates, it's going to make it even harder because they might not have a job or they have different work hours or something else. And, you know, now you guys are stepping over each other's toes and, you know, clogging up the internet and you're both on conference calls and there's really no, you know, space between you. It's going to get stressful. And that's what I can see happening to a lot of people right now. Right. Definitely. A couple other questions, Brad, before we close. What are some good pen testing tools to help folks, you know, that are interested in, in getting into cybersecurity, specifically into red team? PowerShell. PowerShell. No, no PowerShell because PowerShell and even C Sharp, uh, those are like really huge in the industry right now. I can tell you from what I tell all my 450 people: download Kali Linux or Black Boon to or Black uh, Black Arch. Um, pen to you know any pen test distribution go through metasploit unleashed which is a free training on how to use metasploit and just start watching tutorials and reading how to's on the internet and because the tool doesn't really matter because there's 10 tools to do the very same thing it's the knowledge as to how it happens, you know, the, the flow, the methodology, the A to B, knowing how that works is going to be way more beneficial than just knowing how to use a tool. Um, another question that came in was, what are, you know, what, a co- just a comment on the efficacy of, of security certifications in, in our industry and what are some good security certifications to help, you know, get someone started in the cyber realm? So the downfall is there's such a huge emphasis on certifications and degrees that it can actually lose a lot of good talent. The one that I find the most annoying, but I am certified, is the CISSP. You know, that one is like the de facto IT security degree or sorry, certification for companies. And that's the certified information uh, security professional. So that's done by um, ISC squared. And they have been known to be kind of controversial on their ethics in the past. But I also am still a certified member. Ones that I'd say for people who don't have certifications and that are looking to do it, any CompTIA certification is going to get students one step ahead of their peers because they have that certification on their books coming out of college and they're cheap. They're only a couple hundred dollars, whereas me taking the CISSP was 500. Me doing my SANS class was 6,000. So the certifications can definitely put a big, big hole in your wallet. So stick with the the cheaper ones until you get into a company or hit the lottery to be able to afford to do it. Yeah, that's some good cert tips. Um, Raj, do you have any closing comments or thoughts? Um, Just stay secure, stay safe, follow all the steps you need to stay safe from COVID-19 and also for cyber hygiene. Right. Exercise good cyber hygiene. If anyone needs a 3D printed mask, you let me know. Mine <laughs> looks like Bane. It's awesome. Yeah, be sure to contact Brad about that, folks. <laughs> 
All right. Thank you so much, Brad, for, for coming you, in. All right, man. You guys have a good one. Back to work for me. All right. So that concludes our episode two, where we discuss the two P's, password and protection, device protection. Uh, tune in again next week for the third episode, where we'll be having Mike Hedlund from ISSO and a couple of group members on the podcast.